tú me pones un, un éxito. Si, si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker movement, Jules Duget, with another exciting show for you today. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because too often we as people, we were labeled and overlooked and we were boxed in. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Today's guest, I am really excited about today's show, and I want to introduce to you Dr. Danny Slomoff, who is the CEO of Slomoff Consulting Group and founder of the Slomoff Method. He coaches CEOs and C-suites executives worldwide on their corporate communication. His programs are used all over the world by companies of all sizes, including Fortune 500 corporations to even startups, biotechs, high-techs, financial services, and healthcare. Danny earned a PhD in both clinical and organizational, and organizational psychology during his 35 years of executive leadership and organizational coaching. He has worked with over 25,000 business leaders and peak performers, including Olympic athletes, dancers, and musicians. His clients strive to attain the edge and share the relentless desire to achieve and be on top of their game always. He is the author of The Myth of Public Speaking, the revolutionary brain-based system for communicating in business. He is the speaking coach for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Olympic team. He is also a renowned keynote speaker on neurology of impact, communication, and storytelling. He enjoys his time performing on stage as an amateur actor and concert singer, and he brings a high level of creativity with his coaching. He lives in Mill Valley, California with his wife. They have five beautiful children and five grandchildren. Danny, welcome to our show. Uh, I think I should retire after that introduction. <laughs> Is that really me? Did I really accomplish all of that? Amazing. And time, more to come. More time, to come, friend. Time to step back and, and relax. <laughs> Would you tell us a little bit about what you're working on currently and about your work? Uh, well, we coach executives. We coach them individually and in teams. And fundamentally, what we do is help an executive become a world-class communicator. Uh, that's different than the starting point. Everybody talks, but how do we learn to talk? We learn to talk at the age of one because the brain, the neurons in the brain are developed for the lips, the tongue, and the mouth. And before that, instantly, an infant can produce sound, just air passing across a vocal cord. But at that point, they can shape the sound into words in whatever language the parents want the child to learn. In other words, an infant learns to speak by imitating parents. 
And then the next big influential group are your peer groups somewhere around middle school. You form friends, they're lasting friendships, and you create another way of communicating, imitation again. All of that leads to a habit pattern. The habit pattern everyone rehearses over a thousand times a day. We become identified with our habit pattern. It's easy for us to produce the habit pattern. But what if the habit pattern isn't excellent? What if the habit pattern is just okay? Well, in the world of business, a lot of what happens is your ability to impact and influence other people. And a lot of that happens through oral communication, through the act of talking. So that's what we do. We help executives grasp the difference between their habit pattern and the neurological basis of talking. And that gap is the exact same things a coach would work on if you were a tennis player, a golfer, uh, a musician, or any other activity that has a coordination system at, it, at its foundation. So, for example, if you were a tennis player, I'm not, but if you were, there are three parts to it. There is the swing, which is the coordination system of forehands, backhands, serves, etc. And then there's the game the game where you're trying to use your swing to play a game against an opponent and win. And then the third part is the emotional inner world of the person trying to use the coordination system in game time. <clears throat> so uh, to begin, at least on the last part, I was a sports psychologist for the 84 Summer Olympics and some other world-class athletes. <clears throat> And what all sports psychologists do is they teach a person how to have maximum concentration and focus. Because with maximum concentration and focus, you can overcome easily doubt and anxiety, nervousness, and be able to produce the results you want. As you mentioned, I'm the speaking coach for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Olympic team. Everybody on that team is offered the services of a sports psychologist. And most of them use their psychologist almost every two weeks because they're being trained to control their mind. Now, when it comes to skiing and snowboarding, most events are a minute to three minutes long. That means they can't have any mistakes. They can't have any doubt in that intense, intense period of time. So speaking is not that intense. You can talk to people for an hour, for 15 minutes, for 10 minutes, but your ability to control your mind matters. Now, on the first two parts, the swing and the game, in speaking, the swing is defined by the neurons in the brain. About 13 years ago, I started research. I started to review research on the neurons in the brain for talking. Mm -hmm. Here's what we know so far. 
more in the middle of the brain is a diffused network where we think. The thinking mind's chaotic. We all know this from just before we fall asleep to meditation, and you notice your mind jumps around with words, images, past history, a lot of negative thoughts, a lot of self-doubt and negative feelings, negative self-talk. From that chaos, which is the thinking mind, what we know so far is you fire a neuron that carries content. We don't know how neurons carry content, but we know they do. And how we know this is by putting electrodes around a skull, noticing activity, and then asking a person to self-report. The person says, here's what I'm aware of. They relate the activity to your self-report. If they do this enough times, it becomes a highly probable statistic. And therefore, we can predict from that that this is the way the brain is mapped. That's how we map currently. And in that, the best research I reviewed was at UC Berkeley. Uh, and what they found was the left front side of the brain is the last gate where we go from the chaos, this map, it goes through other gates to the last gate. And there, the neurons fire when you are composing a sentence, they go quiet when you have to transfer it to the motor cortex and say it. In other words, every brain on the planet has these two cognitive activities, chaotic thought to sentence, say it. Doesn't matter what language, doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter who your parents are, because this is neurological. So that's our starting point when we work with people because there's a habit pattern. And for most people, the habit pattern does not use the neurology. It's different. It's full of errors. Where mm -hmm. if you use the neurons, it's shocking, but you speak perfectly. Perfectly. There's yeah. not a single error in the brain system. All the errors are in imitation system. Danny, that is fascinating um, information. Could you tell us a little bit? Because there's some, you know, research out there that says about 40% of public speaking is about one of the highest common phobias. And this ranks higher than death, spiders, and uh, heights. Now, your theory of the myth of public speaking, can you tell us about that? Because public speaking is not a thing. Can you tell us that? Yeah. Um, when you look at the neurons in the brain, nobody has a neuron for public speaking. No one has a neuron for presentations. No one has a neuron for speeches. The only neurons we have are to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. That's the design. It is why anybody we've coached and anybody I've coached in the last 35 years will say, I'm much more self-assured and, and comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one conversation than a one-on-many conversation. Mm. And part of the reason is the mistake I personally made. And as far as I know, other coaches make, which is I was convinced that there was public speaking. 
I coach people to do public speaking. And when you do, you're teaching techniques. The neurons in the brain, there are no techniques. It's a complete fluid system to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So our starting point is, can you memorize yourself at your best in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and you never change because you're seated or standing? Can you memorize yourself in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and nothing changes if you're seated talking to a group of 10 or standing to a, top of, to a group of 10? Can you memorize yourself and nothing changes if you're talking standing up to 500 people? In other words, the consistency is your ability to talk. And it doesn't change because you're standing or seated. The idea that there's such a thing as public speaking is bizarre when you step back and think about it. It would be like saying to LeBron James, the greatest basketball player around today, or even Steph Curry. Mm -hmm. If you went to them and you say, LeBron, you know. There's public basketball play. And when you have people watching you, you use an entirely different coordination system to shoot the ball. And he'd go, that's bizarre. Hmm. Why would I ever change my coordination system? Because someone's watching me. We have convinced people that you use an entirely different coordination system when a group is watching you. But it's wrong. It makes no sense. And it isn't neurologically based. It's a made-up idea. <clears throat> and with that made-up idea, I still was having some success. There were people who were succeeding. But I also had people who were failing. And what I noticed when I was teaching public speaking techniques is they looked stilted, robotic, mm. stiff. They weren't their normal engaging, robust, interesting self. So that problem, at first I said, hey, it must be me. I must be a bad coach. Mm -hmm. And then I went, well, I'm having success. Maybe it's the person I'm coaching. Maybe they're the problem. And then finally what I arrived at, perhaps it's the methodology. And in fact, that's what it turns out. The methodology of teaching techniques to people in business doesn't work. What you want to do is use the neurons you were born with because then you speak perfectly. Mm. So that's part of the myth. Now, there's another profound myth, which is eye contact. And I went, wait, I've been teaching eye contact for years and years. But what I noticed is when you were one-on-one, -on -one, yes, I look at you. Mm -hmm. And then when you get one-on-many, all I noticed was people scanning a room. And I went, wait, there's something wrong with this. And then it dawned on me. The human eye has no intelligence. It's a sensory mechanism. The intelligence is about two inches behind the eye in the mind. Mm. That's when I realized 
we're not making eye contact, we're making mind contact. Mm. That's what we're trying to do, move minds. And so you might say, well, on a one-on-one, can I go through the eye and think about the mind? Yes. Mm. However, you also want to account for the fact that a great communicator can talk to a large group. They can talk to a thousand people and they inspire a thousand people. How do you inspire a thousand people if you believe it's eye contact? Mm. You can't. You have to know the truth. It's mind contact. I can move your mind if I'm focused on that as my target. Mm. Eyes are not an intelligence processing system. You know, Danny, even even yourself, and I know that a lot of this work, like everything else, you have to practice. You have to become good. You have to rehearse. You have to do these things. Read early in your in your book, as a psychologist, you knew the content. You knew everything you were talking about, but you caught yourself having feedback with your colleague and saying, "I just." I looked at myself on film and I look rigid, like it wasn't, it wasn't me. And then you yourself had to begin to work to overcome that. Can you help us understand that? Because many times in schools, we use recordings to help a student see what they think they could correct. Was this the kind of same method that you were looking for when you filmed yourself? Or was there something different that you worked on to become who you are right now? You know what? Let's just go back to athletics. You will hear over and over again at the end of something, a baseball game, a basketball game, a football game. Mm-hmm. You will hear the, the player who did great being interviewed. And invariably, they will say, I have to look at my film. Why do they say that? And the reason is because in the act of, you can only be aware of so much. Mm. When you watch a film, you see things and experience things you didn't notice in the act of playing Mm -hmm. the game. Now, what they do with film is they have very precise criteria. They have criteria in which they say that what I just did was terrific and I'm going to do it more often. That, what I just did, is an error, and I'm going to try not to do it again. Mm -hmm. When you're in a classroom with a kid, the criteria that are being used are the wrong criteria. They're the techniques criteria, where we have a whole set of criteria. It's all in the book, exactly how you look at things, and you look at them fundamentally in these three ways. What's your coordination system? The game in speaking is content. And then can you control your concentration and focus? Mm. With criteria, correct criteria, you a child could look at their film and know exactly what they have to do. Now, part of this is when my children are young, were young, uh, I would go to the elementary school, the middle school, and the high school. And because 
we had, I had three kids in school at that time. I covered a lot of people. I would have assemblies and I would show them about talking. I would give them criteria. And then I would get volunteers who were willing to be filmed. Mm. I would film them. We would watch the film and then ask them for their thoughts on what they just did. And then I'd say, okay, well, let's try something. I would coach them and film them again. And they dramatically experienced the difference mm. between coaching with criteria, the right criteria, and their habit. And by watching themselves on the screen, they get the information, the data, the feedback immediately and profoundly. Hmm. So I would say school's a great place, but not if you're teaching techniques, not if you're teaching people public speaking. It doesn't work. I know it doesn't work because of my research and my experience of coaching for 35 years. So Danny, what makes a great communicator? I know you you go to thousands of companies and you're probably hearing them struggling with these techniques. What are you looking for when you step in to see what this person has going for them as far as strengths and then how you can finagle that? Mm. Well, part of my answer is the definition of talking. Our definition is Talking is the transfer of a sentence, that's the unit, a sentence, to the mind of another person so they can think about the meaning and relevance of the sentence to them. Mm -hmm. In other words, the coordination system is get to a sentence, but you must transfer it to a mind, to a target. And that sentence that you transfer has to be meaningful and relevant to the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. So when I am working with executives, first thing we do is work on their coordination system. So they are speaking sentences and they speak with a, in a, at an expressive level that moves people. Speaking is an expressive activity. It is not intellectual. Most of the business people's starting point is it's intellectual. No, it isn't. Hmm. If you can't emotionally stimulate people with your idea, it will not stick. Mm -hmm. So I get an executive at a company. And the first thing we're going to do is assess your coordination system. And then give them lessons on that. But then we immediately move to their content, which is part what you're bringing up. Why does content matter? Because content is the way a listener processes. And my success is not what I say. The great success is what their listener leaves thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. So if you have a continuum of excellence, and at one end, you have the greats. You can pick anything, sports, music. The greats do things differently. That's why they're the greats. And in speaking, 
greats will say some version of, I know that my listeners, certainly in a group setting, will leave with one idea and a strong feeling. Every once in a while, they'll leave with two ideas. They organize their content around what and how their listeners will process. That's not what people do on the continuum. Mm -hmm. On the continuum, people are rational, but they're wrong. They're saying things like, well, you're paying me to be an expert in this area. Therefore, I must demonstrate my competency in my area of expertise. How do I demonstrate competency? I explain and share with people what I know. So on the continuum of excellence, people are trying to be thorough. They're trying to represent their knowledge. I actually call it representative content. Mm -hmm. The greats say, I don't do that anymore. I'm way past that. I am here to help the mind of a listener process an idea and have a very strong emotion. So literally in the game, the greats, organized content entirely different than everybody else in business. And I think some of that probably happens in school systems mm -hmm. where teachers, some are inspiring and others are, let's get through the unit. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I wanted to reference. And you talk about this early in your book, you know, the speaking plus language plus personality and the coordination system is universal. But you talk about people rushing into content, whether they're looking at what other guys are doing with their smartphones, browsing, that they think people are just, oh, this is something that caught my attention. I'm going to listen to this part. It has to do with me or so on. Or is it something that when people are there, they're so consumed and worried about, are they listening? Because I really worked hard on this. And now you're playing these mind tricks on yourself about are they listening to what I'm saying? Do I need to get nodding to acknowledge that? What are some of the things that people are doing that? Because like when you said, if you're speaking to 500 people, there's no way you're going to find every single person and note what they're looking at. What are you thinking about when you're up there either singing, presenting? Tell us about that work, Danny. Um, there's only three responses you will get from a group and they're predictable. The first response is somebody is paying attention. It's delightful. You love it. It makes you feel like you are connecting. Mm -hmm. The second is you're trying to talk to somebody and they turn their head away. In other words, they didn't want attention and you're overwhelming their nervous system. <clears throat> it's going to happen. And when it happens to someone like me, I leave them alone. I move to somebody else. I'm not here to overwhelm somebody. I'm here to move minds. Mm -hmm. And I can move a person's mind without having to pay critical attention to them if they are more, um, they don't want attention paid to them and they turn away. The third one is the one you brought up, which is if you've got 500 to 1,000 people, there will be people looking at their phones. Now, early in my career, I took 
anybody not paying attention to me, we didn't have cell phones then, I took that as a power struggle. And mm -hmm. I thought, who do you think you are not paying attention to me? I am so great. Mm -hmm. Well, that didn't work because it wasn't ever a power struggle. I'm the one that made it a power struggle, not the listener. <laughs> so I finally got into a more centered state of mind. And once there, I realized there are people in this room who have more important things on their mind than me. I, I am not the most important thing in their mind. And you know what? It's okay. It's legitimate. Mm -hmm. At that point, I realized anyone looking at their phone is because something on their phone is of more value and significance to them in that moment than me and what I'm saying. And so I reconciled with, you know what? That's legitimate. I d I'm not the most important thing in this room. Mm -hmm. I imagine that, I would like that, but it's not true. So from that moment on, I never bothered with people who were looking at phones. I just go, they got something more pressing than me. I put my attention on the first group, the people who are attentive. Hmm. And the second group, the people who are attentive but don't want me to look at them and pay attention to them when I'm talking. And that will be good enough. But I'm looking for those cues. Now, one of the things you ask is, so what's the cue of somebody who's attentive? Usually it's they're nodding or they have a strong facial reaction because I am so experienced at what I do and I love my talks to groups to be interactive, not one way, I get off the stage fairly quickly and I'm watching people and I'm watching their faces. And when somebody nods, I might be moved to say, you know, you're nodding. I'd love to know what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And I give them the mic and now they share what they're thinking. I use what they're thinking to enhance my point. My assumption is whatever this person's sharing, there are lots of people in this room who have a thought like that. Mm. And that makes it more connected between me and them. Here's the thought I stimulated in you. Here's the reaction I stimulated in you. And now I'm using that to move forward with my content, but I'm not doing it in a one way, I'm just doing all the talking. I'm doing it interactively. So the people in the room feel they're involved mm -hmm. in the conversation. And that's good stuff. Cause I think that if you're talking about a company and same people who work on the same staff, they may have the same thoughts or the same issues. So that makes sense. I loved how you said, stop performing and have a conversation. And, and, and those of us who are up here, you know, trying to convey information, like you said, we always think about, was I good? Was I not good? Did everyone hear based on what you are, you know, sharing with us? But a lot of the content, maybe the people who are there in our audience, they can even shine light on your presentation. Because when you say to them, I see that you're nodding, please tell us what you're thinking about. 
that brings it now to a whole group. And I think that that brings in the act of surprise. He walked off stage. So there's so much happening. What about for us, even when we're paying like a parking ticket and they call out your name, you know that you're on a roll call. You're going to get called. They're going to ask you a question. You know, these jitters that we're getting right before you get up there to say whatever it is. It can be the hospital. It could be anywhere else. You know, you have these jitters and everyone, even yourself, potentially you've spoken to droves of people. When you get jitters and shakes, what are you what are you trying to do to calm yourself down? Uh, actually, there's a whole chapter in the book mm-hmm. about this um, and stories from executives that I've coached, how they overcame this problem. Uh, so to begin with, the problem can occur at any point in somebody's career. Mm-hmm. I have people, and actually it's one of the stories in the book, guy goes, I have always self-assured and comfortable talking to groups. And here I am, a Google executive. Out of nowhere, I stood up to talk and I was flooded with adrenaline and cortisol, which are the chemicals of nervousness, and it paralyzed me. Mm-hmm. From that moment, I needed help. So it can happen at any point. Now, in that story, he tells you many of the things that we do. For your example, what I would say is exhaling is really valuable. If you notice athletes, like before someone shoots a foul shot, they dribble, 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 big inhale, and they exhale, and Mm -hmm. then they shoot. Watch a baseball player. Big exhale, they pitch. Big exhale, they swing the bat. Mm-hmm. Watch an Olympic swimmer. Big exhale, dive into the pool. Why? Why are all these athletes exhaling? What is it they know? What they know is that exhale affects the adrenaline cortisol chemistry that you've released into your blood system. So one of the things I would say to a person who's getting these jitters is you should be practicing regularly what I call rhythmic breathing. And that is inhaling to five and finish your inhale at the number five, exhaling to five, finishing your exhale at five. I literally do this multiple times a day. And the reason I do it is the rhythmic breathing helps me recenter. Mm-hmm. Now, I learned rhythmic breathing from yoga. I studied yoga for many, many years. They have been promoting this for a couple thousand years or more. Recently, at Stanford, a researcher there discovered about 150 neurons toward the base of the brainstem, 150 neurons. Mm-hmm. Now, the brain has over a trillion neurons. So the ability to find 150 is already remarkable. And these 150 have long extensions from that area into the limbic part of the brain. And when you do re- rhythmical breathing, 
they are sending a neurological stimuli to that emotional part of the brain, the limbic part, mm -hmm. saying, you don't have to be so um, nervous. You don't have to have this reaction. You can release and relax and calm down. Mm. So that is the very first study neurologically that I've come across that explains why rhythmic breathing works. Mm. Works. So I would tell any of the viewers, try it. Inhale to five, exhale to five. Try it, do it about 20 times and notice what you experience. Mm. And if you use it and, or if you practice it and use it during your day, now it's available in that moment where you are feeling the jitters. If you don't practice it and you try to use it in that moment where you're feeling the jitters, it won't work. It's mm. just an intellectual concept. Mm -hmm. You literally have to practice these things. And like in all things, Danny, I think that we have to all work on our own crafts. I mean, you've worked with so many people from, from big companies to startups and so on. And I know that there has to be at least one person or two people or maybe more that really have touched you about this work that really say to you, man, I am so glad I got into this. Can you think about a story that reminds you of why you have to get up every day and do this work? Um, actually, it's very hard to answer what you said because my book is full of all of these stories. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you an extreme one. And that's the, the, toward the end, there's a chapter on creativity and people mm -hmm. who have taken this to incredible levels. So there's a story of a guy named Matt. He, Matt, I started coaching him at least 25 years ago. And during our coaching, Matt was already good. He wasn't great, but he was good. But during our coaching, Matt became absolutely spectacular. Mm -hmm. And so Matt came to me one day and he said, I'm having my annual sales kickoff. We're going to have a lot of people in the room to hear what we accomplished last year and what the sales plan is for next year. And honestly, I'm feeling totally dry. I can't figure out what could I possibly say that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I just said, Matt, so are you doing anything right now in your life that you're enjoying? He said, well, funny that you would ask. Um, I decided I should pick up painting. Painting? Oh, okay. <laughs> Tell me about painting. He said, well, I went out and I bought a canvas and I bought a bunch of paints and brushes and I have it in my apartment. And when I get home from work, if I fill up to it, I paint that canvas. And in fact, every time I've painted the canvas, I hate what I get. So I wash it out, whitewash it, and then I start again. And I whitewash and start again and whitewash and start again. And recently, I painted the entire canvas red. And then I took some liquid, in this case, it was alcohol, 
and I sprinkled it on this canvas as an experiment. He happened to be in the alcohol business. Mm -hmm. And he said, all of a sudden, through this red and the alcohol, a, a, a sort of modern art design feeling was there. And I went, I love that painting. I went, this is an amazing story. So I said, I think this is how we're going to do your talk. So what I encouraged him to do was to bring onto the stage a giant canvas. It was eight feet tall and about 20 to 25 feet wide. Mm. He had to have it built. And then put buckets of paint and brushes all over the stage. He walked out on the stage with his painting and he said, this is red. And he told the story of how many times he tried and he failed until he actually got something that pleased him and worked. Mm. He said, this is just like us in business. We're out there making sales on our alcohol. And we are trying and trying. Sometimes we hit our numbers. Sometimes we don't. But what works is our ability, our resilience to just keep going. Our grit just to keep going. Make this happen. Figure it out. Mm. So what I'm going to ask the leaders of our sales organization is I'll call you one at a time. You're gonna come up here and here's how you're gonna give your sales results for last year. You're going to look at all the paints in the canvas and something's gonna inspire you. Doesn't matter what it is, don't censor. Take a brush, one that you choose and paint something on the canvas. And then you're going to turn around and you're going to share with us what that inspiration was and your business results. Mm. In other words, no slides, no content that you've rehearsed. It's going to be a living conversation based on you doing something artistic and creative. Now, when he and I designed this, we decided that this painting is going to be absolutely a mess. I mean, you're bringing up 20 people to mm -hmm. represent different parts of the world and their geographies, and they will paint stuff and it won't relate. We couldn't explain it. The painting ended up being gorgeous. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous to the point they hung the painting in their headquarters office when you walked in the lobby mm. for over five years, that painting was there and people would walk in and go, wow, what an amazing work of art. And then people could tell how it happened because mm. it was so unusual. But that's, it's a profound memory for me because mm. Matt took a risk to be incredibly provocative with his audience and make them participate. And it worked out fantastically. That was known forever 
as the best sales meeting the company has ever had. Wow. That is a great story. And here on this platform, we reference that as being more than just. A lot of times people are put into one bucket. You know, he's great as a speaker, but you helped him connect. And I saw early in your book a story of a person who was great with the guitar. They didn't have faith in what they did, but you led them to think about this is something you do without even thinking. Your left hand is doing this. Your right hand is doing this. So there are ways that we can connect to diffuse. And you talked about the breathing and these other techniques that I believe we already have innately. And I think will help us develop new ways of making connections. And I really do think that this is helpful for our community and listeners. Tell us about you and self-care, because I know you went through a whole, when we first well, met. I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I want to clarify something for our listeners. Everybody I've ever coached says, I've got to be confident. I have to feel confident. Mm-hmm. Or they turn to other people. <clears throat> they turn to other people and say, you need to be confident. The problem is no one knows what confidence is. Mm. If we knew what it was, wouldn't we already be there? Mm. But we don't. Confidence is an abstraction. What we really mean by confidence is competence. If you are incredibly competent at a skill, that competency is why you experience the abstract feeling of confidence. Mm. So if you build your competency as a communicator, that competency will work in all these different situations. It just will, because you walk in to that room knowing you're very good at talking. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at talking. And you know people will respond to your competency. Yeah. So, So for me, even when I'm working with some of my students who are struggling with behaviors or whatnot, I give them an opportunity to take space and they use space. Sometimes I like to run. Sometimes I like to take a walk. It all depends. But for you, friend, what are the things you do for self-care? I mean, you're busy all day long. What are, what are things that you go to, to kind of help you feel like, okay, I'm refreshed. This is something that I really need. Um, So where I live is just across the Golden Gate Bridge. We're the first town on the left. It's called Mill Valley. Mm-hmm. And we are at the base of a mountain called Mount Tamalpais. Mount Tamalpais is where the mountain bike was invented in the late 60s. There's a whole movie about the invention of the mountain bike mm-hmm. on this mountain. There are hundreds of miles of fire roads and trails all along the mountain and the coast. Mm-hmm. Just about every day, today, for example, when I finish work, I get on my mountain bike and I ride at least 20 miles. Mm. It's an e-mountain bike um, because if I used a regular mountain bike, I couldn't go further than about eight miles. But with an e-mountain bike, which assists you in pedaling, 
I can go over 20 miles. That's approximately two hours of cardiovascular exercise. Mm -hmm. When I finish that ride, my mind is clear. Mm -hmm. I feel strong. I feel great. That's my favorite act of self-care. Mm -hmm. In addition, though, that inhale to five, exhale to five, it's another act of self-care. I do it multiple times a day. Mm. And then probably the last thing is um, I started eating extremely healthy foods uh, a long, long time ago in my mid-20s. My father died, well, when I was in my 20s of cardiovascular disease. And I said to the doctor, I don't want this to happen to me. Is there anything I could do? And at that time, the only thing they really knew was, you know, meat can actually increase your cholesterol and that can cause you to have cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So slow down on the meat. I didn't slow down. I eliminated it. Mm -hmm. I do not eat meat. I will eat fish and poultry, mm -hmm. but everything I eat is organic. Mm -hmm. And as a result, my diet and my exercise and my self-breathing, between all three of those, I'm in, I'm in pretty damn good shape. That's right. And I, my self-care is really critical. What are some of the areas that you would like to conquer that you have not yet? Although you've amassed all these things in these different areas in psychology and coaching, so on. What is something? And I know that you sing as well. So yeah. what what is something that you're saying? You know what? I gotta I gotta make sure that I do this at some point, or or like mm. do this. Um, well, this year was a big one for me because one of the things I wanted to accomplish was writing a book. I mm. did. I'm proud of it. It's an easy read. Mm -hmm. It's got great cartoons in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and unbelievable stories by executives. So I'm really proud. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, hmm, I need a challenge. I decided to do a one hour singing concert. Mm -hmm. I'm not a great singer. I'm a good singer. And I love performing. So I spent three months with a music director we chose the songs, we rehearsed the songs, then I brought in the band, rehearsed with the band, and I did my one hour concert. Beautiful. This year has already been a remarkable creative year for me. Mm. Uh, but that's one of my drivers. What's the next creative thing? And I define creative as my creative act. Mm -hmm. I do not define it based on how it's received. Mm -hmm. I don't have, the, have to have the number one book or to be the greatest, to be, you know, a great famous singer. Mm -hmm. I don't. I just have to feel it's me. And so um, I'm tossing around a bunch of other thoughts for mm -hmm. me. Um, another book I'm thinking of, mm -hmm. and one of them, is I've had a remarkable life. Uh, many years ago, from 1982 to 92, I had a program in West Africa called the Traditional African Medicine Program. Mm -hmm. 
originally I went over, I'm not anymore, but I was completely fluent in French. So I would go to French West Africa and English based um, West Africa. And I would meet with tribal healers, become friends, initiated into the tribes. And then I would take people there. I would take doctors, nurses, and psychologists to experience what we actually did before modern medicine. Obviously what we did before modern medicine works or the species would have died out. Hmm. So we do, we've had healthcare forever and it works, but we don't pay attention to that anymore. We only think about modern healthcare. So I was fascinated by it. And for 10 years, I would go into these societies, these tribes, and experience, become initiated. And my kids and my wife have all said, you've got to write stories about your life. You did things nobody else has ever done. And mm. that's one of them. Mm. So I think there's another book in just the amazing opportunities that came my way. And I grabbed every one of them. I did not bypass them. I had the courage and guts to do it. And then um, I love to be on stage. So I'll try out for some plays or musicals in the coming year, and maybe I'll get a part. Well, we're going we're gonna to post a link to your book on our website. And please share um, when you become a rich and famous singer for us. Friend, can you just take over the floor? I want you to leave our listeners with something to remember you by, to remember that the art of communication and speaking is really not script. Tell us about what you want us to remember about this session and about your work. Uh, I'd say the most important thing is if you are ambitious and you want to become really good or even great, then approach it exactly the way it's done with musical instruments and with sports. You have to have control of the coordination system. My book will tell you how to do that. If not, reach out to us. Mm -hmm. In addition, your content has to be provocative, has to be interesting to people. And you have to tell that content with passion. If you don't, it's just information, bores people, and they won't keep track. Thank you so much, friend. And I want to remind everyone here that whether you're going to ride a bike on a mountain or sing, remember these concepts, swing, game, and inner world, how that connection can help you relate your content to be interesting and to be competent of how you do this. Because on this platform, no matter where we're from, no matter who we know or what we don't know, we will not be overlooked. We won't be labeled or put in boxes because our plight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in friends for another He's Just a Social Worker show coming to a town real soon near you. We out.
Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa. This is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde de la Rosa. Esto va dedicado a ti, mamá. Te extraño mucho.